Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 24 through 26. You know, there are some mornings where it seems like four songs aren't enough. <laughs> you know, we could just sing and sing and sing. Praise the Lord that that's one of His gifts to us, that that's how He's called us to worship Him, is, is through, through singing. And I remind you, too, that singing is not just something that, that we do. It is something that we do for Him in worship, but it's also something we do for one another. We are actively proclaiming the gospel to one another. And it's our obligation for all of us to participate in that. But praise the Lord for, for, for singing. Let us come before the Lord and pray to bless His Word. Father, another sun, Sunday is here. Another Sunday, I'm humbled to be here. And I realize, Lord, as we contemplate the goodness of who you are and the vastness of your nature and character that you are outside of the universe, I understand that I am completely holy and totally inept to be a representative here proclaiming your word. And I realize it is by only your strength that I would be able to do this. And I pray, Lord, that you would then help to remove me from the equation and that you, Lord God, would have your word go out the way that you see fit. And that, Father, that you would help me to put away whatever preconceived ideas I would have and whatever emotions that I would bring and whatever, whatever thoughts that I would try to impose upon the text, Lord, that you would remove that and expose to us all the truth of your word as you would have us to hear it and know it and apply it. And I pray, Father, that you would help us, Lord, to walk in that today and that, Lord, that you would help me. And I pray that your word would be true forever. And I pray, Father, that you'd bless this word as it goes, and we give you all the praise, honor, and glory. In the name of Christ our Savior, we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 1, <clears throat> beginning in verse 24, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads this way, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is the word of the Lord. The late author Jerry Bridges once wrote, God, by His very perfection of His moral nature, cannot but be angry at sin, not only because of its destructiveness to humans, but more important, because of its assault on His divine majesty. 
This is not the mere petulance of an offended deity, but because his commands are not obeyed. It is rather the necessary response of God to uphold his moral authority in the universe. And though God's wrath does not contain the sinful emotions associated with human wrath, it does contain a fierce intensity arising from his settled opposition to sin and his determination to punish it to the utmost. So, on Saturday, while I'm still trying to get over my turkey hangover, as I was preparing for the message uh, for today, I took a moment to look at Twitter and I noticed that someone that I follow and someone that I respect posted a question as a survey. And, and sometimes those are kind of fun to see how people vote. Well, the question reads this. It says, love your neighbor. Are those words of the law or of the gospel? Well, I know the answer to this question, and so I participated by selecting the law. Because the command to love your neighbor is just that. It's a command. It is the law. If you remember, loving your neighbor, as Jesus said, is part of the greatest commandment. Jesus in Matthew 22 says, You shall love your Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law. So loving your neighbor is obviously part of the law. Part of the same law as loving your God with all your heart. So it is not the gospel. And the reason why it's the law and not part of the gospel is simply this. You can't do it. You can't love God the way that He deserves all the time. No matter how hard you try, you cannot love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, at every moment. You can't do it. You can't love everyone around you the way they ought to be loved. Just try it. You can't do it. Right? In fact, you can't love anyone around you the way that you should. Because if you could, then you wouldn't get irritated with people. If you could love everyone around you the way that you ought to, you wouldn't give anyone the one-finger salute. You would never turn anyone away who would ask you for help or for money. You would, you would never feel jealous of anyone, and you certainly wouldn't feel frustrated if someone disagrees with you or argues with you. The fact of the matter is, is you cannot keep the greatest commandment because it is the law. That is why you need the gospel. That's why you need grace. That's why you need forgiveness. That's why you need the righteousness of Christ. Because you can't keep the law. The only human pe person who has ever kept the law, who's ever kept the greatest commandment, was Christ himself. And so loving your neighbor is not the gospel. And so I voted for it to be the law. And what, what surprised me I kind of expected, especially this guy, most of the people who interact with him are pretty conservative Christians, but what surprised me is about half of the respondents to this survey cast their vote saying that they believed that loving your neighbor was the gospel. And the reason why this surprised me is because most of these people were professing Christians who, who voted that way. Nearly half of the Christians who responded to this survey had a deep, flawed misunderstanding of what the gospel is. And so that prompted me to read the comments, and that, which, by the way, just confused me even more. One fellow goes this. He's like, well, with some uncertainty, I have voted for the gospel. 
I cannot conceive of a saved person who will not love their neighbor, except perhaps those saved people who struggle to love their neighbor, right? He says, I acknowledge that Jesus identified it as a command, and I don't claim it as a salvific act. It's the result of salvation. And then he says, perhaps I should change my vote. I would say so, you should. He was quite confused, but the Bible makes it clear that it is not the law, and it doesn't become the gospel. It is still and always will be part of the law that reflects and shows us how, fall, how short we fall. Then another person wrote, he says, they say this, they took the middle road and says, well, I argue it's both. It's the law and the gospel, which, by the way, is never helpful to just argue the middle, okay? Sometimes it's necessary, but really oftentimes it's just you're just trying to make friends of both sides and end up making enemies out of everybody. All right. He says, I argue both. It's the law and the gospel. And they say, however, both of them point to the fact that I cannot love my neighbor as myself without the help of the Holy Spirit, which is all flowery and lovely, but still is not true. It misses the point. Right. Loving your neighbor, though a good commandment and one that we ought to seek to obey in our lives as we seek to submit ourselves under the lordship of Christ, is still the law. It is not the gospel. Right? Because you and I, even being saved, even some of us being sanctified much longer than others, will still fail at times to keep this commandment. Right? You just can't do it. That's why we need the gospel. And that's what the Bible clearly teaches. That's the clear teaching of the Bible. But the problem is that many people, the problem that many people have isn't what the scriptures itself teach. The problem that we tend to face is that we tend to elevate our own emotions and our own thoughts and our own opinions and our own musings to the place of some divine authority that we place over the scriptures. That's the problem, is that there's something inherent in human beings that thinks that we can sit in judgment of what we think the Bible means by what it teaches. Notice that these people didn't appeal to the text when they gave their answer. They didn't say, I think it's, I think loving your neighbor is the gospel, and here's the text that support my understanding. They didn't do that. I think that, the, that it's both the law and the gospel, and here are all the verses, I think, that support that understanding. No, instead, they just read the question, they appealed immediately to their own thoughts and their own feelings and their own assumptions of what it means to love your neighbor, and then they answered. And because of that, they end up distorting the distinction, the distinction between the law, which cannot save, and the gospel, which is the power of God to save. In, in the end, they allow their personal thoughts to distort an important distinction. And I mention this as we prepare to look at our text today is because this perhaps is one of the greatest issues that's facing Christianity in the West. This is one of the greatest issues facing the church in America today. You want, you want, do you know why we are so divided as a church? Do you know why churches divide themselves? It's because of this tendency to elevate our thoughts and our opinions and our feelings to the point of authority that we end up reading those things back into the text. We start with our assumptions and we read them into the verses. We start with our feelings about who God is and how, how the Bible addresses certain issues and we tend to read those feelings back into the Scripture. 
We let the subjective things about us influence how we understand the Bible and what it actually says. So rather than setting aside our preconceived ideas and reading the text in an effort to dig out the truth that's already in the text itself, instead of that, so many people shape the truth to fit their feelings rather than shaping their feelings around what the truth is saying. We live in a postmodern world, and it's just part of our assumption, right? where we seek to shape the truth by who we are rather than learning the objective truth of God's word and allowing it to shape us. This is one of the greatest issues of our time because as long as we start, as long as we start with us, our feelings, our assumptions, and the way that we feel, we will find always a way to make the Bible say what we want it to say. If we begin with us and what we think in our emotions, we will always find a way to make the Bible say the things that we want it to say. Again, that's why we have so much division. We elevate our opinion about the text over the text, and the result is a distortion of the truth. And that's why we see so much disagreement about the text that we're looking at today. I'll be honest with you. Like, this is the text that I didn't want to have to preach on. Right? This is the part of, the, 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 of Romans chapter 1 I wish I could just kind of preach through to get to the next parts. Because I know that at some point, when we talk about what we need to talk about today, someone's going to be mad. We talk about what we need to talk about here, someone's going to disagree. Not because of what the text is saying, is because what culture's saying to them. Right? Because, if this, because if there is a text that causes disagreement, if there's a text that causes bitter debate and shrill emotional tirades, it is the text before us. But understand this, the text before us speaks so very clear about issues that are emotionally charged in our age, but somehow suddenly they become convoluted and murky because so many people, even a lot of people who call themselves Christians, are more committed to their own thoughts and to their own emotions and their own personal experiences and their own assumptions and their relationships with other people than they are out actually finding out what the objective truth that the Word of God is actually communicating. But the text before us is really not ambiguous. It actually speaks quite very clearly and plainly about sin and about God's judgment upon sin. We simply, as Christians, as people who follow Christ, must decide that we will seek the truth, no matter what the truth is. We must decide in our hearts to value the truth of God's word above our own personal feelings, which means we must be willing to set those feelings aside. We must be willing to set aside our assumptions and, and the cultural pressure we feel. And we must be committed to go where the text leads, even if the truth conflicts with our preconceived ideas. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you have ever studied the Scriptures very long in your life, if you have read the Bible for any length of time in your life, you will come to a point where you'll read the Scriptures and it will confront you in an area you don't want to be confronted in. And it will challenge you in, in ways that you don't want to be challenged. And you will have a choice. You will either rise above the Scriptures and hide what it's saying, or you will allow yourself to be broken by the Scriptures and then remade in the image of Christ. That's the choice that you have. 
because we are God's children. We are to be shaped by the Word of God, not the other way around. And so with that commitment to the truth, let us address the text before us, which is Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. And the first thing we need to understand is if we're going to truly grasp the truth of this text, we need to, we need to get a handle on the context. The thing that we need to remember is that the things that Paul says here are not isolated statements to be examined and held out by themselves as if he says them out in space. They have a context. Now, we will memorize sections of Scripture and whole big chunks of Scripture, which is helpful and useful, but we must always remember that every verse, every word, every passage of Scripture always has a context. And in Paul's letter, in his, all of his letters, every verse is connected to the context of that letter, and it's true for this letter to the Romans as well. Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in Rome for a reason. In fact, he actually wrote it for three specific reasons. Number one, he wanted to build a relationship with the Roman church so that he could then use it as a base of operation to go further west. That was his, that was his ambitions, to go further west with the gospel. And number two, he wanted to mend the divide between the Jews and the Gentiles in that church. We've talked about before, and I won't spend a lot of time on this, but there was some tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. There were some dividing lines and some, and some issues that popped up that Paul was wanting to resolve. But number three, the most important thing that he wanted to accomplish is to make sure the Roman Christians understood the gospel. That was his main purpose. The, the Roman Christians, was not this, the, the, that church was not started by an apostle. It didn't have anybody that came around to give, give oversight and make sure that their theology was growing in the right direction. And so he wanted to make sure they had a complete understanding of the gospel of grace. And so he wrote this letter to clearly explain what the gospel is. And he wanted to make sure that they understood the hope that the gospel gives. And he wanted to make sure that they knew how we are to live in light of the gospel that the gospel should transform us and we should live in a way that demonstrates that. Well, in chapter 1, Paul begins to unpack the gospel itself, and he starts by explaining the bad news of the human condition that makes the gospel necessary. And, and in fact, in, in chapters 1 through 3, Paul basically is going to argue that all of humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, are equally condemned for their sin before, before God. And they are hopeless unless God Himself intervenes. That's His overarching purpose from now all the way through the middle of chapter 3. He wants to explain the bad news, and so he begins to unpack that in chapter 1. That's the context of this passage. This is where we are, right, in the letter. In, in fact, Paul says, after he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he then begins to explain the bad news. And let me just remind you that he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's the bad news. God's wrath is actively being revealed against men for their sin. Why? Because by their unrighteousness, men suppress the truth. What truth? It's the truth about who God is. Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are, like all humans, without an excuse. For, because, although they knew God, we need to remember that point. This is the point he's making. They know God. Though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking 
and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That is the context for everything that follows. Everything that follows must be understood in light of what Paul just said here. God's wrath has been revealed against mankind. Why? Because mankind knows the truth about God. They, knows, they know He exists. They know His nature. They understand what He expects. And they're aware of His judgment against sin. But in spite of knowing this, they actively suppress the truth. They actively hide the truth about God. They actively seek to keep the truth of God hidden. Why? Because they don't want God. They hate Him. And because of that, they refuse to worship God. They refuse to give Him the honor that's due to Him for being God. And they refuse to give thanks to Him for being good to them as the creator and the sustainer of all things. Instead of giving God what was rightly His, they exchanged and traded the glory of the one true living God for dead, vain images of the things that He created. They worship those things as God. They denied the truth and refused to give God His due worship and instead created worthless idols. This, by the way, is the issue. Because it's the ultimate slap in the face. For all that God has done for them, they spit on Him. They profane Him, they deny Him, they reject Him. And, and this is not something that we don't have a context for. We all have a sense of what that might feel like. We don't know what it's like to be God, but we certainly have a sense of what it feels like. Like when we work hard on something and we invest our time and our energy and our creativity into a project, we give ourselves over to it, we're proud of what we've done, and then someone else comes along and gets the credit for it. Tell me that that doesn't sting, especially when somebody else gives them credit for it. It's a slap in your face. You know what that feels like? It's an insult. Or how about when how those times when you help someone and you give them money or food or job opportunities? You give them something big that they need. You really go the extra mile. You get way out on the limb for another person. You have to sacrifice to help them along only for them to turn around and to be ungrateful towards you. Tell me you don't know what that feels like. You do. Okay. What's even worse is when that person looks to you in surprise when you are unsettled by their, their ingratitude and they look to you as if you, they're entitled, that you owe them. It's an affront to you. It's an insult. Or how about when you pour out your love for someone and you give all that you have to the relationship. You've sold out heart and soul only for that person to take all that you have given them all of your trust and then turn around and betray you with someone else. Right? A lot of us know that feeling. That is what, it, that's what it's like. That's what humanity does to God, but worse. We take the gifts, the gracious gifts that He has given us and continues to give us as if we're entitled to them. And then we turn to Him and curse Him that's the essence of mankind's depravity and sin. We breathe the air that He gives us with lungs that He created for us only to use that air and that breath to turn around and profane Him and curse Him. 
We take all that the Lord has given us and we betray Him in favor of man-made lifeless idols that can't even do anything for us. It's the vanity of it that really stings. Because we love our sin that's destroying us and we hate the God who created us. That's the condition. That's the indictment of all of mankind. That is why judgment has come. Mankind refuses to give God what is rightly His, honor, worship, glory, and thanksgiving. So understand, mankind isn't... Hear me on this, please. If you remember one thing from this, this is probably worth remembering. Mankind isn't searching for God and then suddenly falls into a pit. No, mankind runs from God and jumps headlong into the pit in order to spite the God that made us. That's the condition of mankind. And that is why God's wrath has been revealed from heaven. It's because mankind refuses God, dishonors God. And Paul tells us how the wrath of God is revealed in this text that he says, therefore. And this word right here, therefore, again, whenever you read the word therefore in the Bible, you should stop and say, what's that word therefore, therefore? Right? Because it's there for a reason. It's a conjunction. And it connects everything that Paul has been talking about with what he's about to say, which means you will not understand what he's about to say unless you understand what he's already said. It's connected. So therefore, in light of the fact that mankind denies God and refuses to worship him as God and give him honor, in light of the fact that man would rather worship vain idols in place of the living God who, would give them, who gave them everything, in light of that, he says, God gave them up. That's how God's wrath is revealed, is that God gave them up. And, I, and you have to see, you have to see how poetic this is. You have to see how poetic this is. They deny God. They refuse to worship God. They reject God. They ran from God. They suppress the truth about God. And what does God do in response? He just gives them up. Fine. He gives them what they want. That's what he does. He gives them over to what they want. They don't want God. They want their sin. So he gives it to them. He lets them go. He gives them over to the sin that they already desire. That's how God reveals his wrath against mankind here and now. He gives them up. I think we've been there, right? You argue, you argue, like, fine. Have it your own way then. That's the essence of what God's doing here. You see, we often think that the grace of God is when, is when he does something positive for us. We often want to always associate God's, God giving us something we want. I mean, there is certainly grace in that, right? But we tend to think about that as grace. We want to be healed. God heals us. That's grace. We want money to pay our bills, and it comes, and we go, that's the grace of God. Right? We want a better job, we get a better job, it's the grace of God. We want better relationships, or we want a relationship to work, it's the grace of God. Right? That's what we tend to think of grace, and that certainly is grace, but that's not all there is to it. What we, what we fail to see is oftentimes His grace is not expressed in giving us what we want, but rather it is expressed in His restraining hand keeping us from getting what we want. Oftentimes the grace of God is him holding us back from getting the things that we think that we want. God in his grace restrains us 
and doesn't allow us to become as utterly depraved as we want. This right here, by the way, is the confusion that people have with total depravity. Total depravity is the idea that I am sinful and every part of me is sinful. It means my mind, my heart, my emotions, my affections, my reasoning ability, all of it's contaminated by sin. Not that I'm completely evil, but that everything about me is contaminated by sin. And because of that, I can't on my own accord choose God. That's total depravity. Utter depravity is where we become as sinful as we possibly can be. And there's not any of us here that's as sinful as we can be. Because you know your own heart. You know you can be a lot more sinful than you are. Right? It is God's restraining hand that keeps us from being as sinful as we can be. Right? Which should then shape how we see human beings. Human beings are not good people who occasionally do bad things. Human beings are depraved people who do the good things we do by the grace of God restraining us from the evil that we would do. And you know what I'm talking about, because we have all experienced God's restraining hand upon our lives, right? We've all wanted something or wanted to do something, but for some reason we don't get to do it or won't do it because, because something's in the way. I mean, all of us, I think, I could speak for all of us, can I? All right? You've all at one point wanted to throat punch somebody for something, right? But you have resisted that urge to do so because if you're God-given conscience, it says you better not do that. But you wanted to do it. Your sinful nature wanted to do it. And if it weren't for that restraint, you probably would have done it. Some of you have done it a couple of times. Right? We know what God's restraining hand in our conscience is. We've also been tempted to take things that don't belong to us. Right? Many times. But we are aware of the civil law that promises consequences, well, it used to promise consequences. I don't think there's many consequences for those guys driving around taking Cadillac converters nowadays, but that's a whole different issue. But the thing is, is civil law in the past at some point has restrained us. We don't want to go to jail, right? That's God's restraining hand. The truth is we've been tempted by a number of things to do a lot of evil things, but we won't do the things that our heart wants us to do because either our family's influence on our lives, what will they think about us? That's a gift from God, right? Our community, you know, our standing in the community and what would they think about us? That's, again, another gift from God. The law of the land or the conscience that God has, that bears witness to us continually what God would have us do. This is the active hand of God restraining us from evil as, as He's keeping us from being as evil as we want to be. This is grace in our life. God shows His grace towards sinners by keeping them from becoming as vile as they want to become. When the atheist says, this is what's funny too, when the atheist says that the proof that God is not real is the fact that an atheist can have a high moral ethic and do good things rather than evil things, only, only thinks that they're proving God's non-existence only serves to prove His grace in their life. All they're proving is God's restraining hand upon even them. That God is gracious even to them. But when sinners continue to rebel against God, and they can continue to spurn His grace, and continue to refuse to acknowledge Him and worship Him, notice Paul doesn't say that God sets their hair on fire. He doesn't strike them down with lightning bolts. As everybody supposes, right? Oh, you better not do that because God's going to strike you dead. No. 
How does he punish them? How does he reveal his wrath? He simply removes his restraint upon them and gives them over to what they already want, which is their sin. He says, therefore, God gave them up. He gave them over. He surrendered them. He turned away from them in the lust of their hearts to impurity and the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And the thing is, this word lust is from the Greek word that means a passion built on strong feelings. It's, a, it's an emotional, strong feeling. And where does it come from? It says right here, from the heart, from within. It's not from out there imposing its will on. It is in here already. It's a strong emotional desire that originates from inside of mankind. It is there already. He already wants it. It's already a desire. And so God's judgment upon him is to give him over to that passionate emotional desire. And there are two things we need to say about this. Number one is the fact that when we are working through the Word of God and trying to understand what, we, what He wants us to know and what the text actually says, we must, to the best of our abilities, put away those strong emotions. Those strong emotions are already trying to lead us somewhere else. Right? Understand, emotions are important and good. They're a gift from God in the right context. But we must be really, really careful understanding that those emotions are already having a tendency to lead us into trouble. And so when you encounter the scriptures and, it til- and you, you encounter a truth that makes your heart beat fast and you get frustrated, you need to realize the problem isn't the scripture, it's your heart. You've got to step back and say, this is how I feel about it, but let me just see what the text is actually saying and be willing to go where it goes. We must put away those strong emotions. Our passionate emotional desires cloud our judgment. Our strong emotions have a tendency to color reality. We all know this, by the way, right? that you can have a feeling and a perspective on the way things are today and then get a good night's sleep and not be so emotional and all of a sudden everything looks different. One of the other, and one of the things that we must recognize is emotions can and do mislead us. I mean, I'm telling you what I'm really good at is talking myself into things I already want. Thinking I'm being rational. But notice God isn't giving them over to their reasoning or rationing ability. He gives them over to their passions, which corrupts their rational ability. In fact, Paul's already even said, right? They became what? Futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were dark and claiming to be wise, they became fools. Thinking themselves sharp, they became dull. And as fools, they are given over to the strong emotional passions, which then leads number two. Number two, what Paul is referring to here as these passions is very specific. A lot of people want to just kind of lump all sins together. Paul is being very pointed here. He's talking about sexual sin. That's his point. To make this say more than that is to just basically to corrupt the text. Paul is saying this because they refused to worship and acknowledge God, gave them over and gave them up to their desire for illicit sexual sin. A sin that was once restrained in them is now being released and unleashed on them. Again, look at the text. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity. This impurity literally means unclean, vile. God gave them up to the lusts or their impurity, to the dishonoring 
of their bodies amongst themselves. We don't need to spell it out, but this is a very clear expression. Paul clearly is talking about sexual sin. And what he's saying here is the evidence for God's wrath upon a person, the evidence of God's wrath against a community, the evidence of God's wrath even against a church and even a nation is them embracing their appetite for sexual immorality, sexual sin. Sexual sin, the reveling in, the embracing of sexual sin is a sign of God's judgment upon a person or a group of people. Indulging and delighting in sexual sin is the evidence that God has given them over to their appetites, which should be startling to us. It should be concerning to us. Because look at the world around us. Sexual sin is everywhere. Everywhere. From adult movies to children's cartoons. There's sexual innuendos in everything. It's in commercials. It's all over the internet. It's in every form of media. Sexual sin is everywhere. Sin, sexual sin is on display and it's normalized and it's celebrated as everywhere. When you watch a movie and two people start liking each other, what do you expect to happen? That they fall in love and get married? No, that they kiss and then have sex. That's just the expectation of the way things are. God's wrath and judgment is being revealed on our nation. This very moment is being revealed on our community. It's being revealed even in the lives of those that we know and love. Because sexual immorality, like Adultery and fornication and pornography are ubiquitous. It is everywhere around us. And, and the, the disconcerting part is a lot of the people around us, many of the people around us, most of the people around us, even people that we know and love, they look at that and they go, what's the big deal? There's a very cavalier, callous attitude that we have around us because they don't see it as a big deal. Let's just be honest. Most people don't see it as a big deal that teens and adults are having sex with people that they're not married to. For them, it's not a big deal. In fact, there are people that you know and love who think that it's just part of, part of life. God doesn't care. Come on. It's just natural. Boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. Teens will be teens. Right? It means... It's just sex. It's not a big deal to God. He doesn't really care. But he does care. Look at how Paul phrases it. God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. First of all, Paul makes it clear that sexual immorality is uncleanness. It is vile in the sight of God. It is sinful. It is heinous. God hates sexual sin. It is particularly abhorrent to God. Now, there are people that will look at me. I've even heard them saying, I disagree with you because, and you've heard this expression before, all sin is the same. All sins in the eyes of God are the same. So they would insist that overeating is the same as cheating on your spouse. I mean, that's the equivocation of what they're saying. The driving faster than opposed at speed limit is, is the same as being promiscuous. That every sin on earth is the same in God's eyes. But the problem is it's just simply not true. I want you to hear me. 
This is one of those things that gets, goes contrary to what the conventional wisdom is. It's not true. I don't care who told you. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that all sins are equal in the sight of God. It doesn't say that ever in any place in the Bible. Now, the Bible does tell us that the smallest infraction of the law makes us sinners. Right? It does say that. It does say that all sin, no matter how small it is, puts us at odds with God and liable to His judgment. But it does not say that all sin is the same to God in His eyes. Murdering children is not the same in God's eyes as lying to your boss about being sick and not coming to work. Because if it is, you're in trouble. Right? Committing genocide is not the same as you stealing 10 bucks off the counter. Because if it is, you're in trouble. It's not the same, and you instinctively know that it's not the same. Now hear me. All sin is wrong. All sin is an affront to God. But some sins are particularly heinous in the sight of God. And sexual sin is that. Sexual sin is something that God has a particular hatred for. In fact, Paul makes it clear to us in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. He says this. He says, flee from sexual immorality. He doesn't say fight temptation. He doesn't say push back on it. He doesn't say stand your ground. He, what does he say? He says, flee, run from it. Every other sin, Paul says, every other sin a person commits outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There's something particularly heinous to God with respect to sexual sin. The reason why sexual sin is particularly vile to God is because of what it does to people, what it does to His image bearers. So Paul says, God gave them up. He gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. And, and don't overlook this. The outworking of sexual sin is the dishonoring, the defacing is what it means, the degrading of people and their bodies. That is the natural outworking of sexual sin. It is the degrading of people. Illicit sex, the truth about sexual immorality is that it degrades humanness. It tears down what makes us people. It reduces us down to simply being animals. The truth about illicit sex and sexual morality is that it reduces people to mere objects of gratification rather than human souls that are to be loved and cherished and nurtured. Sexual gratification reduces true love and intimacy to animalistic urges. It cheapens affection. It cheapens love. It cheapens respect. It cheapens dignity. It cheapens the body. And worse, it's destructive. It is horribly, horribly destructive. No matter how our world wants to paint it as this wonderful, beautiful expression of freedom, we know that it's destructive. We see that it's destructive. And I'm not even going to address the emotional toll that sexual immorality has on people, which is far bigger than we can possibly imagine. But how about the measurable things, such as sexually transmitted diseases? Or how about divorce? Because the root of most divorces is this issue right here. Or how about single-parent homes? You want to see people that are actually the victims of sexual sin or the children who are being raised by just a mom or just a dad and not having that full family 
to guide them and shape them. Or how about worse yet? The, the incalculable cost of the 64 million babies that have been slaughtered in the womb since 1973. This is in the name of sexual freedom. This is directly a consequence of the sexual revolution in our country. This is the direct consequence of the devaluing of marriage and family. Illicit sexuality is horribly, horribly destructive. But our culture has become so hardened that anyone who waits to be married, anyone who abstains from sex is seen as an outcast. They're they're seen as undesirable. They're seen as just a weirdo. I mean, you can't believe that you would actually do something like that. I remember um, when we took the kids to Hume Lake, there was this, um, uh, the vocalist for the worship band, um, she, an amazing singer, McKaylee and her hit it off really well. We, we, uh, we just love to listen to this woman sing. And she was about to get married um, very soon. And she talked about purity. And she, she remembers going to a Christian college that there was a pact between certain men in, in, the, in that college that they had a pact that they would be the first one to finally give, give her, cause her to lose her virginity. I mean, that was, that was her attitude towards her. Now, years later, their hearts are broken for ever having felt that way. But she was seen as something as an anomaly because why? Because she wanted to honor God with her, that part of her life. Our culture has become hardened but it's really the judgment of God upon our nation. Paul says, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to the impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Notice that Paul repeats the charge. He doesn't just leave it hanging there. He repeats the charge. Mankind refuses to give God his due worship as God. That's the charge. That's the issue. Mankind exchanged the glory of God for the vanity of false images, and now mankind exchanges the truth about God for a lie. And actually, the Greek more precisely says the lie. Not just a lie, but the lie. John Stott, the eminent theologian, says that this is the ultimate lie. And what is the lie? It is the lie that something or someone else should be and can be worshipped in place of the one true God. That's the lie. And that is the heart of our rebellion against God. We just flat out refuse to give God what is due to Him. We refuse to worship Him as the Lord and the King over creation. And instead, we give our veneration and our honor and our glory to what is, to, that is rightly due to Him to something vain. That's the heart of the rebellion against God. That's the heart of the very first sin, by the way. What is it that the serpent promised Eve? What was the promise? Chapter chapter 3, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you, lowly human, will be like God. That you'll be like Him. You don't have to glorify Him. You can glorify yourself. You'll be just like Him. The first sin was not the fact that they did something wrong. The first sin was rooted in the fact that they denied God the right to be God. That's the sin. 
That's the lie. Anything that, that, that should be worshipped other than God, the one true God, is the lie. And from that moment on, mankind has been exchanging the truth about who God is and His nature for that lie. And because of that, God gives mankind over to his sexual immorality. And because of this, God allows mankind to sink further and further and further into depravity. And this is just the beginning because it actually gets worse. Right after this, Paul writes in verse 26, For this reason God gave them up. So Paul comes back to the very familiar refrain. Right? This is the revealing of God's wrath, is that God gives mankind over to his sin. And notice, he says, for this reason, okay? it's the same reason, man's refusal to honor and worship God and give him what he's due. That's the reason. And he says, for this reason, not only did God give them up to their sexual sin, but God gives them up to their dishonorable passions. And the thing that we need to understand is when he says dishonorable passions, he's no longer simply talking about sexual immorality, such as adultery, which is sex before marriage. He's talking about something in his mind that's even worse. What Paul's illustrating is is as mankind rejects God, God pours out his wrath on them in their life by allowing them to descend further and further into the pit of depravity. But there is a progression from bad to worse. As Paul moves from passions of the heart to dishonorable passions, he's describing for them a further and further descent into darkness. If we don't see this in the text, we're going to misinterpret what he's saying here. Passions that Paul's going to describe for us. He won't even let us to our imagination what these passions are. He describes, he says... For this reason, God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. For, again, another conjunction. For, because their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves a due penalty for their error. Now, before we jump into the obvious issue here, And before we address the things that will create all kinds of emotional responses out of people, let me point something out to you that you're already missing. Notice that this is the the third use of the word exchange in this text. This is the third time that Paul says they exchange. It's not accidental. In verse 22, he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, traded the glory of God for the, of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals, and creeping things. In verse 24 and 25, he says, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity and the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves because they, what, exchanged, traded the truth about God for a lie. And then verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women, exchanged natural relations for those who were contrary to nature. It's not accidental that he's framing the argument this way. Now, many people in our culture get so caught up with the next part of the text, and they get so caught up with wanting to argue about the next part of the text, and they get so willing to defend their perspective about the next part of the text that they miss this important detail. This word exchange here is worked into this structure 
for a reason. It is not accidental. Now to mention, now I mentioned that, but we even miss more than that here because we're reading this in English. Because the, 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 when you read the Greek, the progression is actually more pronounced. You see, the word that Paul uses in verse 23 that means that we, we translate as exchange is the word elaxan. Elaxan. It simply just means to, to exchange. But then in verses 25 and 26, Paul uses a different form of that same word. He adds a, a, a prefix to it, and it's metalaxan. Notice that the word is the same root word, but there's a change to it. Right? And this word, metalaxan, gets translated as exchange, but this word brings with it an additional idea. And the idea that it brings is this idea of an after effect. That something happened in the past that influences what happens now. It's one result affects another result. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? It's one thing affects something else. And so we need to understand this in this context. Mankind traded, exchanged the glory of God for created things. And the after effect of that exchange is that mankind traded the truth of God for a lie. And then the after effect of that, the consequence of that is he further exchanged and traded natural sexual relationships for unnatural ones. That's the movement. That is the, that is the order of Paul's argument. He is going from one place to the next here. It's a progression. It begins with denying God's rightful honor in worship, and it moves to idolatry and progresses deeper and deeper into darkness and depravity. That is the progression. And, and notice he repeats the word in this text, natural. The repeated key word in this text is natural. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave, them, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. The, the word natural is an important defining point of this whole text because a lot of people will look at this and say, all right, he's talking about natural relationships and unnatural relationships. And what that means is, what is natural for me is what's natural to me. What is natural for me is how I feel. Right? See, what we do is we apply postmodern thought to what Paul's saying here. What's natural for you might not be natural for me. What's natural for me might not be natural for you. If it's natural to me, then it's good, right? So if, if it is natural for me to be in a monogamous same-sex relationship, then Paul's not talking about that then. He must be talking about something else because it's natural to me. He must be talking about unnatural relationships, like heterosexuals participating in homosexual relationships. That would be unnatural, right? Or those relationships that are exploitive, like rape and pederasty. That's unnatural. The problem is, as with all subjective truth, is if I'm the decider what is natural based upon my emotions, then nothing is off limits for, for what is natural to me. I just base it on my personal desires. So that's not what Paul is talking about here. We must rid ourselves of the postmodern notion of that assumption. 
what we need to realize is Paul's entire argument isn't rooted in postmodern thought. It is rooted in what God, who God is and what we are by nature as He has created us. When Paul says natural, you should think created order. That's what he means by natural, how he created things. It's not what feels natural. It's what is actually natural as God has designed it. That's the issue. Again, look at with me at Genesis chapter 1. And then God said, let us make man in our image and our, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In his image, he created him male and female. He created them and blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is the created order. That is the creation mandate. That is what's natural. That is the reference point from Paul's perspective. It is the male and female relationship. And even more specific than that, if you were saying, well, that's just the Old Testament. Well, Jesus joins in and says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And then he says, therefore, in light of that, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. If you needed more of an explanation of Jesus' view of marriage, right, then you're just really hunting, because it's right here. This is the created order that mankind was created in complementary parts, male and female. And that natural outworking of that is for one man and one woman to come together in holy union of marriage and in sexual intimacy and in a relationship that is meant for them to be one flesh for the rest of their life. That is God's intention. That is the created order. That is God's design. It's his pattern and his expressed will for humankind. That is God's will. But that is what mankind seeks to destroy. You see, it's never been about personal liberty. It's not ever been about bodily autonomy. It's about rebellion against God. Mankind knows that God exists. Mankind knows what God is like. He knows what God requires. But he suppresses the truth in his unrighteousness. He denies knowing God and the outworking of this, this exchanging God's glory for something else is that he gives up a relationship with the, with the one true God to have a relationship with a false God. And then mankind in his hatred for God goes further and exchanges the truth about God for a lie. And rather than giving God what is due to him and thanksgiving honor and praise and worship, they rather give it to some false God. And so mankind looks at creation and denies the existence of God. Mankind worships creation rather than the creator. But the problem is that mankind still recognizes the image of God in himself. He might deny it in creation, but when he looks inwardly and sees that he's different than all of creation, he still sees the image of God in himself. And what is man's response? To rebel against God's created order, to destroy that image in himself. And how does he do that? He gives into his animalistic passions and he forsakes monogamous marriage 
for momentary gratification in, in sexual sin. He embraces sexual liberation and falls headlong into fornication and adultery and promiscuity and pornography. And if that's not enough, the truth of God and his created order is still revealed even in their illicit relationships. The male-female order is still evident in them. The hand, the fingerprint of God, the male-female complementary design is still evidence of God's image in them. And what does mankind do? He goes further into depravity. And in that context, then listen to what Paul says. In that context, hear these words afresh and anew. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary in nature. Does it make sense? And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Doesn't this follow now? Is there any question what Paul is talking about here? He's talking about the depravity of same-sex relationships. He's talking about the sinful nature of homosexuality. Women leaving behind natural relationships with men to have unnatural relationships with women. Right? It's unnatural. It's against God's created order. It's not a personal preference. And likewise, men leave behind the natural relationships with women and engage in unnatural and ungodly relationships with other men. Not only are these relationships unnatural, he says they are shameful. Now I understand. I want you to know, what I just said is not popular. And I want you to know, like if I never had to say this, my flesh would be okay with that. If I never had to talk about this ever again, my flesh would be okay with that. I know what I said will get me labeled as homophobic or bigoted or a hate monger. I I know that what I said will get me canceled on social media. I know there are people in this community who still right now will not set foot in this church because I have dared to say things like this in the past. But here's the thing. As Bodie Bauckham says, I didn't write the mail. I just deliver it. Paul wrote this. And the thing is, is if you can dance around it all you want to, you can do whatever hermeneutics thing that you have to and start with whatever perspective that you want to, but all you're doing is denying the truth and unrighteousness. Right? He makes it clear that homosexuality is the natural outworking of man's rebellion against him. It is, and itself is the consequence of God giving mankind over to what he wants. In fact, homosexuality, like sexual sin, is the wrath of God revealed against those who refuse him. And it's the inevitable judgment of God upon individuals and communities and even upon nations who rebel against Him. Just open your eyes and look at our country. The reason why everything is upside down is because the judgment of God is revealed against our nation. The reason why nothing makes sense, the reason why logic is not logical anymore It's because the judgment of God is upon our country. The reason why right is wrong and wrong is right is because God's wrath is being revealed. The reason why they're teaching kindergartners about transgenderism, just let that thought even settle in your head for a second. The reason why drag queens are having story time in public libraries 
The reason why the world is working so hard to make it illegal to call homosexuality a sin is because our nation is being judged by God for our rebellion against Him. There's no other explanation for it. You look at the world today and think back 20 years, you would think that you would, if you would have stepped forward 20 years to now, you would have thought that you stepped off into an alternate universe. What we're seeing is God actively punishing us with, not with lightning or fireballs. He is pouring out His wrath by letting our country go, by allowing our nation to turn from Him and pursue what they desire, the sin that promises freedom and joy, but in the end draws us further and further into the darkness. Our cultural acceptance of the LGBT lifestyle is not a revelation of how enlightened we are, as many people will say. It's a revelation of how far we have descended into the pit of depravity. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Mankind refuses to acknowledge God, and God allows them to go their own way and pursue their own passions in all manner of sexual sin, and mankind continues to rebel against God, allowing them to go further and further into unspeakable depths of unnatural relationships. Have you noticed how people are opting to look even more and more and more and more unnatural? The weirdest and the strangest is being celebrated. The idea that a person can just decide, I am no longer a man because I'm not a man, and then go mutilate their body with the consent of the public and the medical establishment is insanity. The fact that people have gone even further and called themselves animals, that, that people have, are, are purposely having limbs removed so they can be disabled. The fact that we are talking about taking the image of God in humanity and saying, Lord, you're not the Lord. I'm going to alter this and change this to where it's unrecognizable. That's the human condition. By the way, that's what they saw in Rome. Not long before Rome collapsed. Mankind's attempt to get free from God, in that attempt they will find a deeper enslavement to depravity. That is Paul's point. What Paul is saying is the evidence of mankind's rebellion against God and the evidence that all of mankind is in sin and the evidence that God's wrath against mankind's sin is, is mankind falling deeper and deeper and deeper into depravity. And we, church, have but one choice. Is that we either accept and believe what Paul is saying, that we agree with his assessment of humanity as the basis for the gospel, or do we, by the public pressure, continue to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and make the gospel about something completely different? That's the truth that we have. And that's the place where I get to when I face these difficult passages. Is that, Lord, let me not rise above the text. Let me be conformed by the text. Let me not in hatred agree. Let me lovingly agree with you and then look upon my brothers and sisters in Christ and call them also to agree. And then let us look at the world around us and lovingly, not pointedly, but lovingly point them to the place they're going in their sin and point them that they're, to the truth that the wrath of God already abides on them and that they need to repent and believe the gospel. That has the only hope that they're looking for validation and hope in these communities that call themselves inclusive, that they're looking for these communities to give them validation only to fall deeper and deeper into worse and worse depravity. 
the only hope of any human being is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I say that, there, there's, there's two responses that Christians have to, to this. One is, oh, we just don't need to talk about that and just, you know, because love is love. Or we go over here and go, look at those pathetic, hateful, ugly, nasty people, forgetting that you're just like them. It's just your sin is different than theirs. And that you're not any better than they are. The only difference between you and them is by God's grace that you have seen and heard the gospel and you repented and believed. That's all you have. You're not saved by what you do. You're not saved by your lifestyle. You're not saved by your ability or not ability to ever sin again. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And that's the message you have. And that's the message we must take to the world. We must agree with the Bible about sin being sin, but then pointing people to the fact that no one can be saved by their inability to sin. No one can be saved by making themselves right with God. The only way to be saved is to repent and agree with God and believe the gospel that He has made a way for you to be saved. That's the hope that we have. And so let me not then end this message where people think, well, all He did was talk about same-sex marriage. That is not the basis of what we talked about. We're talking about the condition of human humanity and all of our need, all of our need, for the forgiveness and the grace of God. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.